0: Hello friends and welcome to one of my favorites podcast. My name is Kelly Scheel and I am having the best time hosting this show and introducing you to some of my favorite people. Today's episode is a continuation of episode three. I am on a spring break road trip en route to Texas and I am currently in Owensboro, Kentucky visiting my Aunt Lee and Uncle Denny. Have you ever wondered how paper is made? I mean, we know it comes from a tree, but how did it exactly become paper? What is the process? And how has that process changed with advances in technology and increased environmental concerns? Today's guest is my uncle Denny, who spent over 40 years working in the paper industry. Listen into our conversation as we talk about paper and some of his other passions in life. Right, I am sitting here with my uncle Denny in Owensboro in their home, and it's just so good to be with you and Aunt Lee. It's always so fun, so much fun to visit with you guys. So thank you for letting me visit and for being a guest on my podcast. Well,
1: it's special when anytime you come to town, so we enjoy having you.
0: Yeah, it's been so fun just being together and catching up. Um, I wanted to ask you to be on my podcast because you have been such an important influence on my life, having known me. All, almost 50 of these years, mm. although I don't think you met me right away Not because right away. you and Aunt Lee were married in what year? 1976. 76. 76. Okay, so I was three years old, mm-hmm. although I'm sure you dated before then. But so you've known me quite a while, most,
1: most of, of my life, life.
0: Yeah. and definitely um, have just been such an important voice and someone I've admired for many years. I was thinking yesterday as I was um, driving into town that you really spent your career in the paper mill or in the paper industry. Mm-hmm. And um, it's something I, I always love learning about different industries. And it occurred to me, we've known each other almost all my life. And it's not something I've ever really sat down and talked to you about. And I think it's really interesting just learning more about you know how we get the computer paper Um, that we have and that we use every day. And I thought you would really be able to speak into that. So I want to talk about a lot of other things, but I thought it would be um, interesting for people to hear your journey into the paper industry and then what you did. So maybe you can start from college. Uh, You went to school at Miami University.
1: Miami of Ohio, right. When I went there, I was thinking of majoring in chemistry and uh, the guy that kind of gave us orientation suggested that I talk to the pulp and paper department head uh, of, of our, that university. Miami it was one of seven universities at the time that had a pulp and paper program, and, he's, and, he, and he suggested it because it allowed me to take basically the same chemistry as a chemistry major would take without having to take a language. There you go. Plus, the added fact was that they usually tried to find their students a summer job, which would help pay for the cost of my college. And so it was a win-win situation, not to mention the fact that my mom really wanted me to find a summer job. So it was, it was a good thing, good thing to do. And it, it was supported that time by a number of industries in that area. The, uh, the Miami River from the Hamilton area up to Dayton had a number of paper machine, pe- small paper mills there. They were non-integrated, meaning they didn't have a pulp mill next to them, so they would purchase their pulp. And then they would make it into primarily printing papers. And uh, the printing papers, of course, they were centrally located because so they could ship to the Chicago market, they could ship to the New York market, they could ship to Philadelphia, they could ship to Atlanta. whoever they wanted to ship to, they could be there overnight. Right. So uh, the Great Miami River... Every day ran a different color, depending on what color the paper machines were running that day. But uh, that was how I got kind of involved in it. And I did work at uh, Champion in Hamilton, Ohio, uh, at least one summer, my first summer I worked there. And then later on, I was able to work at other, other mills around, around the country. And uh, it was a really good experience. I mean, what you're doing is you're taking what you're learning in class and you're, you're seeing it firsthand. Seeing so it's kind of it, like yeah. a co-op
0: yeah. kind of
1: thing. So it worked out really, really well.
0: So uh, when you graduated <clears> then from Miami, um, you did you immediately, I know you did not immediately move to Owensboro. So no. you had a few stops along the way. Share well, my us. first
1: job actually wasn't in a paper mill. It was okay. what we call a converter. A converter takes paper and makes them into final products. Okay. And so my first job was with NCR Corporation, uh, National Cash Register. And they they generally made business machines. And so we we, the division I was with would make the forms that they use, the rolls of paper that they used in cash registers or other kind of business machines, whatever was needed, whatever media was needed in that machine, we would supply. So being a paper maker and being familiar with paper properties and and how to interpret them and what they meant, uh, they hired me on. And I worked there, I think about two years and, uh, then that job just kind of died. And so I, Got another job with another converter in Painesville, Ohio, just east of Cleveland in the snow belt. And there, they made pressure sensitive labels. Their the company whose name was Fasson. They're now a division of Avery Dennison. Oh yeah. But the pressure sensitive labels, like you load on file folders, and like you see on things at grocery stores, that's what we made. And so my stickers, job stickers on yeah stickers like yeah. labels, yeah my job was to match the paper with the end use. Hmm. because the, the properties that you have in paper very definitely affect the end use of the label. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want a waterproof label? Do you want one that, that fractures easily so you can tell if it's been tampered with? Uh, all those sorts of things. So that was my job there. I actually specified and helped develop papers that would be useful in their end products. And I stayed there about two, two and a half years, and an opportunity came for me to return to a paper mill, rather than work for a converter. Converters historically don't pay quite as well as paper mills do. They don't have the profit margins to support it. So an opportunity to move to a paper mill was, was a good thing because I was getting back to what I was actually trained to do. And then also it was it was a much better paying job. Yeah. Uh, and not to mention the fact that we were returning to the Promised Land, Kentucky, <laughs> as far as Lee was concerned. So that's right. Yeah, you know, it was a, right. it was a no-brainer. So we moved here In 79, I actually started work on the 15th of September, 1979, and I I worked in in the paper industry at that one location. There was actually three mills there in Hosville, Kentucky, for 38 years before I finally retired.
0: That's so cool, too, that you got to see... start to finish, what happens with paper. And I want to go back and and have you dive into that a little bit more, like what, what, what you do. But it is cool that you got to see it from, you know, the pulp. Um, or the wood chips, if you would, all the way to the labels that are going on to or the print, the paper that's being shipped off to different places. So but anyway, maybe you can talk. You said there's three mills. At yeah, there were the- three
1: mills there when I start. Actually, when I started, there were only two mills. There was a corrugating medium mill, which was basically a kind of a recycled mill. Mm-hmm where they would take old boxes and recycle them, and they made the fluted part of the box. They did do a little bit of pulping, but it wasn't really truly pulping. It was kind of a softening of the wood chip, and then they would put it into the paper. It gave it a stiffness, a rigidity that would you could would be more useful in a box, okay? The other mill was a bleached market pulp mill. When I started, I was telling you about all the paper machines al- along the Miami River, the Great Miami River. Many of them, in fact, most of them, bought paper from that paper mill from Mm -hmm. that pulp mill Uh, that pulp mill was only a hardwood mill now when you talk about paper most papers are a mixture of hardwood and softwood the the softwood have have long fibers and they're very strong but they don't print very well uh, hardwood has shorter fibers not as strong but it prints better and so what you do is you you mix the two to get the the qualities you need for the end use of the product. Sometimes you'll have more softwood. Sometimes you'll have more hardwood. But it, it's a recipe, and each recipe is different depending on the paper you're trying to make.
0: So like uh, with an example of, like, newspaper. I, you okay, know, newsprint
1: I were, is a different name. It's a whole different thing. Okay, Newsprint is literally ground wood. Okay? <laughs> okay? It's literally ground wood. What they do is they take a log, they hold it up against a, a large stone, and they grind it. Okay. Grind it off, and then they'll lighten it they don't really bleach it and then form a sheet out of it that's why it turns yellow in the sunlight because all of the lignin the lignin is the three-dimensional structure that gives wood its rigidity is still there and it's very photosensitive Mm -hmm. so when you expose newsprint to to, to sunlight it turns brown or turns yellow okay because it hasn't been removed
0: so like the hard pulp or the hard Right, hardwood Hard versus yeah. the softwood. What would be an example of the end result? Result with either of those? Okay.
1: Softwood is is often used in liner board paper. When you make a box, you know you have the fluted part, and then you have two other sheets on the outside. Yes, yeah. Liner board are the outside okay. sheets. Okay, so what we see that's on what the outside you of a box, and okay. it's unbleached. Okay, it's brown right. for the most part. Right. Okay, so that's but the it's very wood. strong. In right. fact. It's called Kraft, that's the German word for, or Swedish word for strong. Okay. okay? And so you glue those together and, and you make a box, okay? Those are primarily southern paper mills okay. Louisiana, Georgia, Mississippi, Tennessee, Tennessee, Texas, Florida, you know, that sort of because thing. Because of the, wo- the because trees of, the, that grow of there. The tiny woods that grow there. That's right, right. right. Okay. Now, on the other hand, Kentucky is primarily hardwood. And so, we built the paper mill in Kentucky because we had access to to hardwoods. And actually, when they first built those mills, there were a lot of mom-and-pop sawmills mm-hmm. still available in Kentucky and Missouri and Tennessee. And what they would do is they would take the residual slabs after they slab off the log to make it square. Right. Okay. And they would chip those, and that's the chips they would use to make the, the paper out of it. Interesting. It was, it was reusing a, a waste. Right, what well, was, yeah, okay. that's great. And then we would take the sawdust and burn the sawdust to generate steam to drive the, so we were taking all the waste from the sawmill and, and reusing them to, to create the product. Uh, later on, there's a third mill added, which was our fine paper mill, which is actually makes the finished fine paper. Okay, so we started out with a medium mill to make the fluid part, market pulp mill, then in 1980, they built their first paper machine, their white paper machine. And it made primarily forms bond, computer forms bond for okay. use in computers. Now, in 1980, it was before PCs were even invented. Right. Okay, so you had mainframe paper machines. Right, with the big big printers. Okay, eating up these eight, these 11 by 17 sheets right. by the thousands daily. Right. You know, insurance companies, banks, financial. I mean, it was a booming industry. Hmm. In fact, uh, that machine was profitable the very first month it operated. Oh, my gosh. That's I mean, it was just unheard of. Unheard of, right, yeah. for any and, business. And, and mills were being built everywhere. Uh, simultaneously, uh, well, let me back up. About 10 years prior to 1980, around 1970. A lady by the name of of Rachel uh, Croson wrote Silent Spring, okay, okay? talking about the effect of pollution, Hmm. okay? So you have, first of all, the the Clean Water Act was passed in 72, okay? And so all the industries now had to meet certain criteria. Prior to that, as far as industry was concerned, the solution to pollution was dilution, Okay. (laughs) Now, suddenly, they have to treat it. So they're having to go back and refit okay. their equipment. Now, what happens is those small, those small mills that were along the, the Miami River that previously just dumped at the Miami River were landlocked. Yeah, they had no place to do it, so they began to shut down. Right. Okay? And in, as in any business, uh, in any business decision, if you have to add equipment, You've got to make sure you add it. enough of it, uh, uh, enough to make a profit, I guess you might say. Uh, scale. Mm-hmm. You have to scale it up. And so, what's happening now, beginning about 1980, mills are going from like 250 to 500 tons a day to 1,000 or 1,500 tons a day mm-hmm. to capture that economy of scale. Mm-hmm. All right? So, there's a lot of paper machines that died. From 1980 to 1990, the mills that remained were big. And so we rebuilt our mill in 1996. And we rebuilt it, and we went from like 600 tons a day to 2,000 tons a day. <laughs> okay. And, and what we had to do, and, and this was, again, driven by pollution uh, legislation, because in 1990, you had something called the Cluster rule. And it was just dealing with the pulp and paper industry. Mm-hmm. Pulp and paper is very, very polluting. It takes a lot of water. The the mill I worked at used 18 million gallons of water a day, oh, okay, to make 2,000 tons of paper. It's also very smelly, okay? And the reason it's smelling is because it uses sulfur compounds to cook the chips and make them soft, okay, to remove the lignin. And... Your human nose can pick up sulfur compounds in just fractions of a part per million. And so it doesn't take much. Well, the the cluster rule was written so that pollutants weren't removed from the air and put in the water or removed from the water and put in the air. (laughs) Okay. They clustered the rules so that you really had to treat the pollution. So now all these paper mills are suddenly faced with having to meet very, very stringent uh, emission limits okay, it drove not only the pulping process, it drove the bleaching process also. Uh, Historically, papers were made from brown. All paper starts out brown, okay? And you turn it white, and then you make it whatever color you want with a dye. So to get from brown to white, historically, you use chlorine gas and sodium hypochlorite, which is household bleach, okay? Well, when the cluster rules came out, you could not meet the new rules using those two elements. So they, they had the entire industry change from chlorine and hypo to chlorine dioxide and oxygen, okay? And, and so now not only are they faced with capital costs to treat water pollution, now they've got to treat uh, air pollution. And so they have to find a way to justify it. So they expand and they make these humongous mills, 2,000, 3,000 tons a day. To be able to get the economy of scale that they need to justify, I mean, when they rebuilt that mill, they spent six hundred million dollars. I mean, it's just phenomenal. So what they did is they went in and they just completely revised the process. And we did this in nineteen ninety six and ninety seven. By nineteen ninety eight, we were complete. But again, smaller mills who were non-integrated fell by the yeah, wayside. So you good. had this consolidation mm-hmm. going on within the empire, within the industry. I mean. And so by 1999, 2000, we have gone from like 60 paper companies in the United States to 20. Wow. <laughs> okay. And, and that's what happened. And so my job actually changed from the manufacturing to the environmental part of it. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of grew up when all this was taking place and was part and parcel to it. And so my job was to make sure that we made a profit, but we also complied with the law. Uh, and it was really quite strict. I mean, when they first put in the cluster rule, they asked us to meet limits that they technically could not measure directly. Mm-hmm. They had to infer the limits by dilution. Mm-hmm. I mean, the technology didn't exist. They still gave us the limit. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So we're, we're scrambling trying to figure out how to meet these limits, how we can changed the process. And so it was, it was a very interesting time, but also a very challenging time to try and, cause it's all new and, and yet you're being held by force of law. I mean, they'd come in and arrest you if you didn't do it. So it was an interesting time, but I kind of grew up with it. And so I saw how it progressed as I, as I came along and it, And by the time I, by the time I retired, I was certified as a wastewater treatment operator a drinking water operator a solid waste manager and an air expert on emissions so i had and and also radiation i forgot about that uh so because we have some instruments that have use radiation to measure measure things now the way the the pulping process works is a wood chip is made of cellulose fibers but it's held together by a three-dimensional molecule known as lignin Okay. And so what you have to do is you have to go in there and dissolve the lignin. And so you use a really harsh chemical. You use sodium hydroxide. But sodium hydroxide doesn't care if it chews on lignin or it chews on cellulose. All right. It likes them both equally. But you want the cellulose. That's the fiber. So what they do is they add a sulfur compound, sodium sulfide, to kind of buffer that so that it preferentially uses the lignin rather than than the uh than the uh, cellulose well sodium sulfide is a sulfur compound and it stinks yeah okay i mean it makes you hydrogen can smell sulfide. it driving in the yeah. area yeah yeah dimethyl disulfide sure. hydrogen sulfide methyl sulfide so forth and so on okay and and you can pick them up at like five tenths of a part per million you, you can smell it so they had to capture all those vapors okay and incinerate them and then it, it, it just became a domino effect. But like I said, it was it was what began the consolidation of the paper industry. And then along comes something called the personal computer. Mm-hmm. Okay? And the personal computer, of course, initially it was a great thing because everybody printed everything out. So we were making forms bond, copy paper. Like gangbusters, just making obscene profits because you know we could sell everything we could make and people wanted more. But then along comes the internet, and now suddenly people are talking electronically rather than printing. Right. Okay, and the bottom fell out about 2010, mm-hmm. the bottom fell out. And so, what's happening now in the industry? is those machines that were making white paper are now making brown paper liner board for boxes so they can sh- supply boxes to Amazon.
0: Uh, yeah, <laughs> okay. that's right, for all the shipping. For all
1: the shipping, that's huh. right. So interesting. The, the paper industry has changed, but the process is still the same.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's now, the other
1: the other thing is, because of the extreme capital costs, there will probably not be another integrated paper mill built in the United States
0: mm-hmm.
1: because of the capital costs and the extreme environmental regulations. So most of the pulp mills being built today are being built in Southeast Asia. Interesting. Yeah, because they have plenty of trees. Yeah. And, and they just ship the pulp in. Uh, there's still some in Canada. There's still some down in South America and Brazil basically there probably won't be any more paper mills built yeah because again the industry has shrunk from the 20 that were around in 19 2000 we're probably down to less than a dozen
0: i was gonna now. say do you feel like those will eventually go away completely
1: no you'll always have to have some you have to. i mean you're gonna have to have legal documents you're gonna sure, have sure. to have some some things just have to be printed so you'll yes. you'll have a baseline of uh, a material but but now everybody records everything. You write right. it to your disk. You know you've got a permanent record. You can you can write it to a, a floppy disk. I mean not a floppy disk, but a, a jump drive or whatever you want. Take it wherever you want to. So you don't really need it as right. such. Not as much. So sure. the industry has completely changed uh, since I've been in there. But it was it was a good industry for me. I yeah it was it's able been to make a your career yeah. well
0: it's, it's super interesting just to think about yeah where paper starts from and that whole process and yeah that how the whole industry has changed yeah. so thanks for sharing all of that um I, I know anyone listening to this is like, wow, he's, he knows so much. Um, one thing that I've always been so admired about you is just your, your great teacher and you are a um, you've taught Sunday school at your church for my gosh, how now, many years, 40 42. years, 42 years, taught all sorts of ages. I know you have, in fact, when we just went to dinner, we bumped into one of your former college students mm-hmm. who was in your class. You have all, so many great relationships. And I was, thinking about um you know you're a real student of the bible um and really have spent uh, I, I know you and bill have shared many conversations yeah. on the bible and and different interpretations and resources if you had um you know some people don't know where to start with studying the bible and if you had a tip for people um what might that be of kind of where to start
1: um get a modern translation Okay.
0: Do you have one you suggest? Uh, well, if, you're, if you have no
1: familiarity at all, the New Living Translation is really excellent. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's really an excellent one to start. It reads much more like we would speak. Uh, it may not be as precisely translated as something like the New American Standard, but it reads easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is don't start in Genesis. <laughs> okay if you really want to know the essence of christianity and you have absolutely no background at all start in john read the gospel of john okay so that you understand who christ is and, and what he was going to do and then read the book of galatians because the book of galatians is only six chapters but paul lays it out so clearly and 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 what Christ did and what He does for you and how you meet Him and when you meet Him what happens, that you can read those two books and really have a pretty good understanding of what Christianity is, uh, and then you can fill in the other ones. I mean, uh, as you're as you're able to uh, to grow, you can start with some of the other epistles. Uh, just to understand, you may need some help for because every one of those epistles were written to a group of believers who were undergoing some sort of challenge. Mm-hmm. okay? And so you kind of need to understand what kind of challenges they were going and what he was addressing before you really grasp what he's saying. But the, with John and Galatians, you get the heart of, of the gospel very quickly, very clearly. And, and then you can go back and fill in the spaces. Yeah. Uh, the Old Testament is good to know, but I do the New Testament first.
0: Yeah, I okay. always say, start start yeah. with Jesus. That's yeah, the best. Yeah, start with Jesus. And right. then it helps you, I think, to interpret the Old Testament when you look at yeah. uh, everything through the lens of Jesus. Yeah. Um, and, you know,
1: when you, when you get to Matthew and, and you get the begats, as I called them, you know, <laughs> just skip over it. Just yeah. go right to the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. that's a good I mean, tip. It was important culturally for Matthew to include it, but you don't need to
0: worry about it. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's helpful for people. Um, Another fun thing about you is that you have a lot of things that you do in your spare time, not that you had a spare time, a lot of spare time, <laughs> but, um, you've always been, you've, you've been so different than, than my dad in that you love the outdoors. Mm-hmm. Um, you're an avid fisherman, uh, as hunter. Um, and most recently in retirement have really picked up playing the guitar again. In fact, we're sitting in your basement where you have three guitars sitting right <laughs> yeah. here.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and so talk to us a little bit about that, maybe about, um, what, where you first began a passion with the outdoors. Maybe we could start there okay. and then move straight on into music.
1: Well, outdoors was something that I did with my family, with my dad. Uh, of course, growing up in the Depression in the 20s, uh, he was a subsistence hunter. I mean, you know, you, you, you hunted because you had to eat, right, or you, you had fished because you had to eat. And so, as I was growing up, as I got old enough to participate, it was kind of f- interesting because when you would bring home game or fish, you were a hero because everybody prepared a meal. You know, <laughs> yeah, it was and so time. yeah, it's a positive reinforcement kind of thing. Like, well, you know, not only is this fun, they like what you're doing. You know, you, that's pretty deep, pretty good deal. So, you know, and it was something. It was just a way to be with my dad and his brothers. Uh, I can remember many Thanksgivings where we would get up, grab our beagles, and go rabbit hunting while our, our our moms fixed the turkey dinner. And then we would come home after we hunted, and the dinner would be there. We'd be out of their hair, and we'd be doing something we wanted to do, and it was a win-win solution. And we did that, gosh— almost all my high school years.
0: Yeah, that's so funny. And
1: I did it with my cousins and and my uncles. And so, you know, we just had a great time together. And then, you know, when I'd go down to visit my grandparents, my my dad's parents died before when I was just like two years old. I never knew them, hardly at all. But uh, when I'd go visit my mom's parents, of course... You know, for I brought home fish or I brought home game, hey, I was a hero. You know, we, we, had, we fixed it for supper. And that's what we had. Yeah. Everybody had a feast. So it was just kind of reinforced. And then, you know, it, it's just one of those things that either like or you don't. Now, my brother Don wasn't into it as much as I am. But, you know, my dad and I just clicked. That was something we could do together. We both enjoyed it. And that's just how I got into it. Yeah. And I've always continued that way. I mean, I am I have taken up fly fishing uh, lately simply because it makes you slow down. Right. Okay. And and you get, you're much more aware of what's going on and where you are and what's happening around you. I mean, when you walk up to a stream, the first thing you do is check the bushes to see what kind of bugs are in there. What what do you need to tie on? Right. You know, and you look at the stream and you say, okay, where are the fish lying here? You know, where would they be? So it just, it just allows me to enjoy the experience more. (laughs)
0: <laughs> what about the guitar? That's something you said, your <laughs> first guitar you got when you were 12. Yeah. And it's something you've picked back up um, here since retirement.
1: Well, of course, when I was growing up, the Beatles were dominant. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so almost every group of kids had a garage band. Okay. And, and my brother and a couple of guys that lived down on our street would get together and play a little bit. And so my parents for Christmas, I believe I was probably 14, bought us an acoustic guitar. And of course, in 1960, acoustic guitars, it took a man to play them. OK, because <laughs> the strings were very, very thick and and there were companies trying to jump on the bandwagon because of the, the, the notoriety the business created. And so the instruments weren't very good and they were hard to play. And they got me this harmony guitar and it was a beast. I mean, I mean, you know, your fingers would almost bleed. And so uh, we, we messed around with that for a while, it took a few lessons, but I wasn't dedicated enough to do anything with that. And then I eventually migrated to some electric guitars, which were easier. Electric guitars are much easier on your fingers than acoustic guitars, but you've got to pack around an amplifier. So, you know, they have pros and cons. And so we messed around with that. And, of course, in high school you have so many interests. I was playing baseball and wrestling and, you know, doing all the things kids do in high school. And so I just kind of lost interest in it. But then when I went to college, I had a lot of friends who played the guitar, and I'd pick it up from time to time and mess around with it. And and finally, I decided, you know, I think I'd like to do this. So my parents bought me one kind of as a graduation present. Uh, and it, it was, uh, I still have it over there. It's the one all the way to the left. Uh, it, it was an inexpensive Yamaha. I think it was in 1973, it was like $110 or something like that, okay? Which in today's dollars would be about $275, not, not terribly expensive. The problem is Yamaha was just getting into the industry. And so they didn't really understand the physics involved in guitar making. Because what happens is, you know, you got six strings there putting that neck under torsion. Okay? And if you don't do the, the angle right, it will, it will turn. Okay? It will crick. And what happens is the action in the strings gets very tall you know off the off the fretboard and, and the tall the farther away it is from the fretboard the more power it takes to press it down so that's what happened there and i had to have that, i've had that done redone twice okay yeah. and so it's it's playable now okay it's not as good as a name brand guitar you know like a taylor or like a martin or gibson or anything like that but it's doable okay the nice thing is it's 50 years old OK, what happens to guitars or any wood instrument is as they age, they what magicians refer to as open. All right. The wood dries out. It becomes very resonant. OK, you'll have lots of sustain. You know, when you strike it, it just keeps coming. All right? And that guitar has it. Yeah. All right. Because it's old. Now, the other guitar, the Taylor guitar there. Is roughly the same. I don't have expensive guitars. I mean, I got $150 tops in any of them. All right? But that one isn't as old, and it's a different style. It's a different wood. Uh, and so it, it sounds different. It's more of a, a, a treble kind of guitar, higher, whereas the Yamaha has more mid tones and lows. And they all have different voices. They look, that, that's why I have them. They're all different voices. And uh, so I play them all three, just depending on the mood I'm in, you know. Yeah, is
0: there something, do you have, I see you have your music book up to Santa Claus is Coming well, to Town, which that's, seems a little bit untimely. Well, the- I
1: mean, I, I what I do is, as I practice, I'll start with some Beatle tunes, and I'll just keep going as tunes come to me, and I'll just play them from memory. That way I, I'm learning them, okay? But I got that book for my granddaughters. You know, <laughs>
0: I wondered to about sing that. to
1: sing with. But, but you, you know, got, you
0: got to work on that one before well, next. Well, actually, that
1: one's one of the easier ones. Too. Okay, that one's one of the easier ones to play. <laughs> uh, and and it's it's surprising because they love it. I mean, I don't sure. have to be good; just yeah. just do it. You know?
0: No, that's so much fun. I can just see you sitting around with your granddaughters and your grandsons playing. You've always been masterful playing with kids getting on the floor (laughs) you know playing with them it's always yeah always so much fun to my boys have loved always hanging out with you, whether it's taking a BB gun in the backyard yeah, or yeah. playing around ball or whatever's in your in your house. Well, I'm just at, a
1: big kid. I mean, yeah, hey.
0: <laughs> yeah. Who knows a lot about paper and a lot of other things in the Bible. Well, we are about out of time. I'm looking here, um, and I want to, um, the way I end all of my podcast is by playing a fun version, a rapid fire version of the favorite game. Okay. So I'm going to give you a topic, and you're just going to tell me what your favorite thing is okay okay so i start with an easy one and that is color
1: okay probably green
0: okay well i won't let aunt lee hear you say green instead of blue well that's that's okay (laughs) i like that i think green green makes sense green makes sense especially Uh, with your love of the outdoors yeah exactly yeah i like that um what's your favorite pastime
1: my absolute favorite pastime is probably fly fishing time Mm. ceased to exist yeah yeah when i'm doing that it's just I'm, I'm in my element. I don't, nothing else exists. Yeah. That's right. a problem for Lee sometimes because sometimes I get carried away.
0: Okay. That makes <laughs> sense. Do you have a place around here you like to fly oh, fish? Oh,
1: yeah. I have all kinds of places. I mean, really, people think you can only fly fish in streams. No. You can fly fish in any puddle of water that holds fish.
0: No, there you go. Yeah. That's I mean, fine. It doesn't matter. That's fun. Um, your favorite book. You are an avid reader. so you, And the Bible is not, not the Bible.
1: I have to eliminate that one. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> um, gentle and lowly uh the heart of christ for sinners and sufferers it's by the way if you want a copy of an extra one
0: all right it, hey. it's
1: just uh um,
0: picked up a gift from yeah this. it's
1: just really it really speaks to how christ cares
0: for you mm.
1: uh, one That's of the great really quotes good. in there is uh he says the gospels are very clear that Whenever Jesus encounters a, a sinner, he doesn't turn away. Instead, he runs to them, mm. which spoke to me.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, a favorite song.
1: Favorite song. Uh, I like the, the Beatles version of Till There Was You. Mm. And I've learned to kind of sort of play it on the guitar. Oh. It's, it's quite challenging. I mean, it's, it's, but it's, I just like the tune.
0: I'm gonna to have to look that one up. Yeah, it's
1: from Music Man.
0: Okay, I love the Music Man. Yeah, so I'll check that out. Yeah. Um, the favorite place you've visited? You've you've traveled quite a few places. Uh-huh. Well,
1: sure. I think my the, the the time I went with Grandmommy to the Holy Land probably is my favorite.
0: Yeah. Uh, Hard to top that. Yeah.
1: Um. Well, it just colors. You know. You know, You never read the Bible the same. That's right. Uh. You know. When 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 you talk about Galilee, you see Galilee. Yeah we yeah. talk about Jerusalem, you just see Jerusalem. So, yeah, that will be. Although I had a trip year before last with my brother to Yellowstone and, and the Tetons and Glacier. It was, it was special, too. Yeah, pretty yeah. spectacular. Yeah, that was special. Different, different. Yeah, just the two of
0: us. Oh, that well, that makes it even better when you have someone, yeah, to make a spectacular place really more special with your brother. Yeah. So, that's yeah. cool. Um, this is an easier one. Your favorite place to eat?
1: my favorite place to eat. Um, Owensboro is known for barbecue. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if you just want a meal where you can just absolutely pig out, (laughs) I mean, and, and and have no shame, there's a place called Moonlight Barbecue and they'll have, oh gosh, four or five different kinds of barbecue, uh, From everything from mutton to beef brisket. Okay. But they don't stop there. They have every kind of vegetable you can imagine. I mean, they they have anywhere from six to eight vegetables. And then you can still have salad. And then you can go to the dessert bar.
0: Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Where
1: they'll have cobblers and banana pudding and pies and cakes and... Soft serve ice cream.
0: Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> and like I would gain 100 pounds just yeah. walking in You, you have to pace yourself. Well, and my last question for you is, do you have a favorite dessert that Aunt Lee makes?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, she makes, usually for my birthday, she'll make me a German chocolate
0: cake. Ooh, I love that.
1: Yeah, so that's probably...
0: That's your I don't favorite. know if that's
1: my absolute favorite, but that's the one that comes to mind. She makes
0: a lot of good ones. So yeah. that's a um, yeah. that's a, that's a hard question. All right. Well, thank you so much for just sharing a little bit of your story. I'm doing this so I can introduce all of my favorite people to so many of my friends and family and really for myself to be able to capture uh, the stories of people who have been important in my life. So thanks for being one oh, of those. My pleasure. I enjoy talking to you anytime. All right. <laughs> so fun. Thank you. Friends, thank you so much for listening today. I hope that you learned something new from my Uncle Denny about paper, the Bible, or even guitars. I know that I did. If the episode made you think of someone in your life and you'd like to learn more about their job or something they're passionate about, reach out to them. I've never met anyone who doesn't love talking about what they know and love. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at one of my favorites podcast. There you will find pictures of all of my favorites and have a place to share your favorites. And lastly, it would mean so much to me if you shared the show with a friend. Join me next week as I arrive in San Angelo, Texas and have a conversation with another one of my favorites. Until next time.